Welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where we discuss philosophy in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Happy New Year! I'm your middle-aged host, Derek Parsons. And I'm your recent college graduate host, Andrew Graziano. And I'm your current college student, Taylor Jones. Taylor, it's so great to see you, but what are you doing here? I'm a new co-host on Open Door Philosophy. Oh yeah, uh, we talked about that. Remember Mr. Parsons? Oh yeah, that's right. (laughs) We're being silly people. Hey, we couldn't be more happy to expand our philosophical family by adding Taylor to our lineup. Yeah, I guess take it away, Taylor. Welcome to episode 48, where we answer the question, who was Simone de Beauvoir? But before we do that, we'd like to remind you that our upcoming 50th episode will be listener questions. So please, send us questions. They can be weighty, light, fun, dramatic, or silly. You can send those questions to our socials on Twitter or Instagram, or email us at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. Now, on to the show. Uh, Hey, we're not going to let you get off that easy. It's your first episode, Taylor. So, Andrew, um, I say let's ask her some of those questions we usually ask our guests. A hundred percent. Sounds great. Okay, I'll start. So, Taylor, we always ask our guests these questions because we love a good origin story. What is your philosophical origin story? Okay, so I first took philosophy my senior year of high school, so last year, in the IB diploma program, a lot like Andrew. And everything in IB is pretty philosophically oriented when you know to look for it. I was originally just going to take a year of philosophy, but it happened to work out to satisfy all of my diploma requirements that I would take two years of philosophy at the same time. So I was taking the intro and upper level class concurrently. And that was a lot sometimes, but it was really enjoyable. And there are days I had Mr. Parsons for three classes, same day. I'm so sorry. No, it was fun. When you're immersed in something, I think you either love it or you hate it. And luckily for me, I did love it. It was really exciting for me to be able to draw connections between history and literature and philosophy. So I just started connecting everything that I was learning. And I really liked that. Oh, that's awesome. By the way, you totally slayed taking two years of philosophy in one year. Yes. Yeah, that sounds like way too much Mr. Parsons for me. So big kudos. (laughs) A little Mr. Parsons goes a long ways. (laughs) Don't kid yourself. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Taylor. So tell us now about what you're studying in college and where you're going. I am currently studying at Baylor University, and I'm double majoring in philosophy and political science, as well as in the Baylor Interdisciplinary Corps, which is in the Honors College. Oh, uh, say say a little something more about that Baylor Interdisciplinary... Wait, what's it called? Interdisciplinary what? Core. Core. Core, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, say, say something a little more about that. That sounds cool. So the BIC, if they love one thing, it is philosophy. We study a lot of Plato and Socrates, and we learn kind of three different branches. So we study world cultures going back from ancient Greece and ancient Rome all the way up to kind of modern times and seeing how literature and different cultural movements impacted historical movements. And we're studying that through pieces of literature like Gilgamesh and the Iliad and the Odyssey. And things like that that still impact us today. And then we study rhetoric. So we started with Socrates reading the Gorgias and the Phaedrus. And then moving into more modern rhetoric. So we read a little bit of Martin Buber and Edwin Black. And started making our own definition of rhetoric. And then we carry that through our freshman and sophomore years. 
And then we will also study social world, which is, I think, bringing in more philosophy. But we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, that sounds super cool. Our next question that we like to ask is, tell us about your favorite philosophers. Um, so if the episode didn't give it away, I do love Simone <laughs> de Beauvoir. And I also really like Hannah Arendt. And they're both kind of writing at the same time around the world wars and after talking about expanding freedoms and what it means to be free and to have a place in society. And then the most memorable philosopher I studied was Bertrand Russell, of course, the first philosopher that I read. And his table analogy really stuck with me about like viewing things from different perspectives, how that changes what the object or situation is. And I really just find existentialism as a whole very fascinating about creating meaning where there may not be something inherently. Uh, all 20th century philosophers, I like that. Okay, now for the easy questions. So, Taylor, what is philosophy? Such an easy question, Mr. Parsons. I don't know that you can really define philosophy super specifically because it is so broad and it covers everything from religions and thought movements to personal beliefs and consciousness and all of these aspects that make up life. But I would say studying how people see the world and how they interact with it throughout history and what it means to be in society and to be a person and how that plays out in both the scale like here on earth and then what it means to have an afterlife or something that happens post-death. It's a big question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a very related question to some of the answers you were bringing up to your definition of philosophy is how does one live a good life? So let's kick that back to you. Maybe it's cliche, but I think that to live a good life, you need to love others and approach life with critical awareness. I don't think it's possible to live a good life by living passively, whether that means not actively participating in life or not taking the time to reflect on what's happening to you or in what you're involved with. I find a lot of truth in the Plato quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. I think you have to I also think you have to believe in something, not that it necessarily matters what you believe in, but just to have some set of core values that you're living out, which kind of connects back to being critically aware of go what's going on around you and how you're a part of that and your role in society and how your actions are affecting other people. Love a good platonic reference. Yeah, I think, I think she passed the question test. What do you think, Mr. Parsons? I think so. I think Taylor's good. <laughs> We're so excited to have you on board with us. This is going to be yeah, great. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, let's get onto the show. It's all about Simone de Beauvoir. We are kicking off a very short two-part series on Simone de Beauvoir and her life partner, Jean-Paul Sartre. So we're going to start off with Beauvoir today, and we're going to kick it over to Taylor. So Taylor, before we really dive into all of this stuff about Beauvoir, can you tell us a little something about her? Yeah, so Simone de Beauvoir was a French existentialist philosopher who wrote primarily about feminism and women and wrote for both academics and the common woman in the 20th century. Would you say that's what she's really well known for, those specific things? Yeah, I would say that her work in feminism is probably what she's most known for, aside from her like strong connection to Jean-Paul Sartre, but that's a little bit different from her personal philosophy to what the media kind of construed her to be. Yeah, we'll no doubt hit those topics of 
her impact on feminism and Jean-Paul Sartre. Some will say it's it's almost impossible to separate uh, or not not yeah. separate, but uh, to to not talk about Sartre when we talk about Simone de Beauvoir. But uh, yeah, a real powerhouse of the 20th century. Simone de Beauvoir lived from January 9th, 1908 to April 14th, 1846. So that's the better part of the 20th century. And she was writing during some of the most influential events of the modern era. So we see her writing about the World War, so World War I, World War II, and then the expansion of women's rights in the later 20th century. Her work was published during that time and kind of into her later years. So when she hits about 40 years old is when we see more published work from her. But she was active in philosophy for pretty much her whole life. She completed her early education at Lycée Fenelon. Then she moved to the Institut Catholique de Paris for mathematics and the Institut Saint-Marie for literature and languages. She completed her degree in 1928. Then she studied philosophy at Sorbonne and wrote her master's thesis on Leibniz. Then in 1928, she became the youngest person to pass the aggregation exam at 21, which is a really big deal, not only for a young person, but for a woman, because at the time, women weren't super heavily educated. So her completing all of this education throughout her early years and then staying in school for higher education and being the youngest person to pass this very prestigious exam in France is really impressive, I would say. And for context, the aggregation exam is a competitive examination for civil service in the French public education system. So it's one of the higher exams that people can take when they're graduating from school. After she graduated, she taught secondary school to support herself financially. And then she also wrote in her early career and started out with novels, which she first published philosophy in 1944. Okay, well, first of all, Taylor, I think I speak for Andrew on this. We're so happy to have someone who knows how to properly pronounce French words on the show. (laughs) (laughs) I was surprised when I switched back into the French mode because, I mean, speaking in English, you kind of pronounce things with an English accent or like, you know, how I'd regularly speak. And then I was like, oh, yeah, French. It just wasn't even conscious. Yeah, so Taylor can handle the French, Andrew can handle the Greek, and I'll handle mispronouncing everything else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we'll get more into her published works a little bit in the episode. But pointed out, she really writes and publishes the majority of her work, at least certainly the, the very fundamental works that have a great deal of impact in the 1940s and the 1950s. So post during World War II and post-World War II, Mm -hmm. her first work comes out in 1943. It's a novel, She Came to Stay. So that was two years before World War II was over with. And also a number of other influential existentialists were writing during the same time, Sartre, of course, uh, as well as uh, Camus, Mm -hmm. which which they were all friends. So that's a... I mean, we've said it many times on the show before that such a cataclysmic event in world history, both Western and Eastern, World War One, the period in between World War Two, and then the first 10 to 15 years of the Cold War. Do you think that, you know, existentialism came to the prominence that it did during this time period because of the uncertainty, perhaps, that 
these events gave to people? I would say yes. How despairing the Holocaust was left so many people looking for answers. And they're trying to figure out what does life look like and what does it mean to have meaning and to figure out if there was kind of a greater meaning to everything that had happened. Because when world history is kind of going well and it seems like everyone across the globe is flourishing, it's easy to say that, yeah, everything has a meaning and there's like benefits to everything. But when so there's such a large scale tragedy, it left people kind of trying to figure out what to do from there. And so there's, you know, the two answers of existentialism and trying to find a meaning or make a meaning and nihilism, saying that everything was meaningless. So we see people making meaning for themselves and trying to redefine how they relate to society. Yeah, sometimes I hear people equating existentialism with nihilism, but really existentialism and uh to further that absurdism with Camus is really a, an answer to the problem of nihilism, isn't it? I would say yes, because nihilism kind of broadly says that there's no meaning and that everything is meaningless. But existentialism kind of comes in and answers that there may not be an inherent meaning, meaning but that it's our responsibility to create meaning and to make something of our situation. And we have the freedom to make a meaning in our lives. Yeah, I think ultimately it's a it's a positive philosophy of life. A lot of people kind of look at it as, a, as it being gloomy, especially with Sartre being mm-hmm. so dramatic with all of his language about existential angst and nausea and <laughs> existential despair. And But really, I find it for myself to be a hopeful philosophy in that it directly mm-hmm. tries to answer this problem that certainly came after all the early 20th century or mid 20th century events that seemed nihilism was was an easy thing to to point towards what was our original question with uh, was the factor of the second world war did that influence the rise of existentialism is that what we were originally asking oh, i can't remember that was like 10 minutes ago man yeah <laughs> Well, I have I have some thoughts. I have some thoughts Please? about this, and it's going to be in the negative sense from I think what from what both of you all mm-hmm. said. I think it <laughs> it might have been a factor in some parts of the world. I'm thinking like continental Europe, but then I'm thinking across the lake, I guess, in in England, mm-hmm. where we have the Anscombes and the Foot and the Midgleys and the Murdochs. At least for Foot and Anscombe, they're the furthest thing I can think of from existentialism where they're they're very much looking inside of the human condition i guess in another way iris murdoch maybe maybe the four could be said to be looking in on the emotions and pushing them more up to be a i don't know is more positive than than seen in the past but i think that maybe it was the separation england wasn't as much affected by the war as, as a place like france was but maybe not as visible with the brutality of war, but at least in in academic discourse in England, which I'm much more familiar with, I don't I don't know. I those those are the four most prominent people I can think of in England philo- philosophically at the time. Mister Parsons, you know more about Mary Midgley Taylor. You might know more about these other other people too. But it, my reading of them, I don't think they were that much affected. So I don't know. What do y'all think about that? 
Uh, I think for sure that the English weren't that taken with mm -hmm. existentialism. Yeah, so. you're right. It's a very uh, continental. And this might be a good place to discuss the differences briefly between continental, what people call continental philosophy and analytic philosophy. Yeah, very much so continental Europe and and the United States were very taken with this particular philosophy. I have no idea if it was if it had any influence or impact outside of that particular region. I believe a bit in Russia. Um, well, certainly Dostoevsky, sure. although that was pre World War II. Mm -hmm. But you know what we would typically call the East in that massively broad category. Uh, I don't know that existentialism really had a big influence there. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe in Japan, totally talking out of pocket here <laughs> yeah but i'm thinking some uh some novels japanese authors like murakami or indo um, who sure. have ex existentialist type themes mm. but anyway andrew can you speak to the whole continental philosophy versus analytic i can talk a little bit about it i think that continental philosophy is better understood as a negative <laughs> negative definition from analytic philosophy analytic philosophy it's encompassing a tradition all the way back from Socrates, but it's most naturally defined in the 20th century with, I think, Bertrand Russell and Wittgenstein in, in England um, and yeah. Popper too. But it certainly extends a long, a long way into the 21st century. Analytic philosophy emphasizes formal logic and thinking about philosophy and usually the philosophy of language too. It also thinks a little bit about, um, uses a little bit of science in there too places a pretty large emphasis on these these philosophical tools. And we can contrast this with uh, more continental philosophy. Continental philosophy is basically anything that's not analytic philosophy. But when I think about <laughs> continental philosophy, I think a lot about phenomenology, which is, which is a huge part of existentialism too. We can talk a little bit about that and emphasis on the emotions. The emotions are, are, a, are a beacon of understanding the world and our experience as humans in them. So I, I think that's a pretty good divide between the two. And yeah. and we can even we can even make a divide about what Taylor's been saying and, and what I just mentioned, Enscombe and all of them. They're very rooted in the con uh, in the analytic tradition, excuse me. And Beauvoir is is firmly in the continental camp. Do y'all want to talk anything about that? I mean we probably don't have time to dig into it deeply yeah. at all. Nice little sidebar here anyway. But I'll say, uh, yeah, you know, when it comes to, if we're just to compare England, France, and Germany, yeah, the German romantics, Goethe, Hegel, all those people, and then certainly the French. I mean, I think the only time the French and the English really sort of agree on things philosophically was during the Enlightenment period. Um, yeah. when you had both English and French philosophers writing heavily on those particular topics. Uh, it's not that they disagree with themselves or each other, you know, violently or something, but very different, very different uh, approaches to philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Taylor, we, uh, we got off track there for mm -hmm. a few minutes, but hey, good discussion about continental analytic traditions. Let's wrap up Beauvoir's background and biography. So the last kind of really big aspect of her life, at least in the public eye, is her long-term open relationship with fellow philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. And this was very controversial 
because so many details were made public or at least aware to the general public to be a woman in an open relationship with another philosopher had so many layers to it that the media just took everything and ran with it. And this got her a lot of media attention, but maybe not the most positive. A lot of people falsely described her as applying Sartre's work to her own. However, she very publicly disagreed with him, and a lot of her philosophical ideas were very different than his, and she challenged his ideas of freedom. So we see a lot of disagreement between them on what it means to be free and what you can do with that freedom. And even how relationships are designed and what it means to love, all those areas, they very much disagree. So it's interesting to see that people just kind of took that assumption that she was applying his work to hers and ran with that. Yeah. So two big deals there. So first, her relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre and the fact that it was an open relationship and that they never married their entire life, although they were committed to each other their entire life. Mm -hmm. But you had this open relationship aspect to it, really scandalous at the time period. And frankly, I think it would be if there was a a really well-known couple today that had the same type of relationship. I still think today it would be quite scandalous and the media would have a heyday with it. So in the 1950s, especially scandalous. Mm -hmm. We can talk about this later, but I think that the fact that it's an open relationship too, um, and this might not be how you wanted to take it, Taylor. So if it's not, I'm sorry. You're good. I think the fact that they were living in an open relationship um, expresses kind of two things that are very similar. First, a commitment to existentialist thought, kind of denying maybe a <laughs> some societal pressures at the time. And secondly, I think we've talked a little bit about this. It's just um, embodying existentialism as a philosophy of life too. So I think those are two things we can get out of that. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought of it like that, I guess, before, but I do think it makes sense. And Beauvoir was very committed that existentialism is a philosophy that needs to be lived. It's not something that you should just sit around and contemplate on, that it's good to live it out. And I would agree that she talked a lot about how it's important to have the freedom to do new things but you can't abandon everything that you've done before. There's no way to escape your own past. And I'd agree that them always coming back to each other, despite, you know, all of their other relationships, they still stayed true to each other and they weren't able to part from that. Yeah. We could do an entire episode just on Sartre and Beauvoir's relationship. It's very well documented. And they both said Mm -hmm. an awful lot about it. And it's kind of intriguing too, but yeah, Both of them said that the reason that they didn't get married was this notion of rejecting common traditions or just for making the point that when it comes to the idea of freedom, which is massive in existentialism, that we are free to create the world the way we want to. And just because the rest of the world says monogamous marriage is the way to go, well, they wrote a lot about it. And I can't remember which of the two was was more for it. I want to say it was Sartre. <laughs> it, it's kind of a, a thumbing their nose at the idea of tradition, living out that notion that they can create meaning in the world the way that they wanted to. 
and by extension, anyone could. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful idea that we can create this meaning and we can create this purpose on how we want to live. You put it much better than than me, Mr. Parsons, I think. But I think before we move on, this I think this is a good uh, discussion point for us all. Let's just take a second to think about why we, if we think this is true, why we think it's true. Because I think that's important. So let's talk for a minute about what reasons to think such an idea is true. Or good. Or good, yeah. yeah. Why do we have a reason to believe in this philosophy? Why do we have a reason to, <laughs> if we choose to live in the way that Beauvoir is advocating for, that's a big deal in our life, right? We're, we're committing our life to such a way that it is very against the grain. Why do we think this is something that's good or even true? What do you all think about that? No, that's a great question. I think the immediate criticism is certainly this would suggest a type of slippery slope, right? If we can all just create our own meaning, then where the heck does that go? I mean, we end up at the Holocaust again. So certainly some protections, you know, or some, not protections, but so there, there's got to be an ethical dimension to this particular claim. Otherwise, just sliding down that slope. Yeah. I think it's important to recognize that a lot of existentialist philosophy also incorporated empathy and having empathy not only for yourself, but for the people around you and respecting their freedom and not just your own. So we can have as much freedom as we do have until it starts encroaching on somebody else's ability to be free and to make decisions and to have their own agency. So ethics in existentialism was always a bit of a problem, frankly, yeah. at least going into the 1950s. And Sartre attempted to address it in his existentialism as a humanism lecture, but still we kind of get left with this ambiguous notion of an ethical perspective from existentialism. By the way, I'll throw in here that the existentialist of the 1940s and 50s would refuse to call themselves existentialists. They did not believe that it was a formal school in philosophy. And even Sartre says in that speech, existentialism is a humanism. He says that basically everyone's calling us existentialists. So I begrudgingly for this particular lecture will accept that label. So they didn't view it as a formalized school of life or a philosophy of life as we might think of, say, Stoicism or something like that. But let me reel all that back in and say ethics was kind of a, a bit of a, a difficulty for Sartre for all the reasons that we've talked about. And so one of the big projects of Beauvoir was to take that problem of ethics and formalize it a bit more. And she does that in a couple of her books, The Second Sex and Ethics of Ambiguity. I mean, one of her most famous quotes, and this might help address your concern, Andrew, is freedom can only be achieved through the freedom of others. And so we have to consider the freedom of others. This is probably a really good time to begin talking about her major works and theories, since we're kind of diving into that right now. So kick us off, Taylor. I don't think it's really possible to separate Beauvoir from her work in feminism, and that is one of her biggest contributions philosophically. In The Second Sex, she writes a lot about the place of women, and that's been said to have began the second wave of feminism as she kind of outlines the role of women 
and what women should look like moving forward or the role of women moving forward. Like a lot of philosophers, she has a prison metaphor, but hers is a little bit different. She talks about the feminine condition as being a, a prison for women, that they're kept in positions of submission to men to satisfy them rather than pursuing their own desires and projects. And she sees this a lot as kind of a social construct in a way that women are put into a place rather than inherently occupying a submissive position. Yeah, so The Second Sex was published in 1947. I think that's her second work. It's a massive book. It's like 800 pages. Mm -hmm. I remember when I ordered it, didn't know how long it was, and then it showed up in my mail. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to take a long time to read. (laughs) But yes, a foundational feminist work. So in that, obviously, she's not only concerned about freedom just metaphysically, (laughs) but she's concerned about freedom from the perspective of being a woman because she did not feel that with all the male existentialists who were writing and talking about freedom, this is where she really challenges Sartre as well, that they're just completely overlooking the female experience in all of this and equating just human beings just biologically as all the same and applying freedom to it. And she says there's a much bigger dimension to to the idea of freedom when you look at it from the perspective of a woman And then by extension, that also goes to other minority groups that are throughout the world. Really big points from the second sex I'd like to bring up. But she notes that women have historically been treated as the other. She uses this term frequently throughout uh, the second sex and and being othered, if you will. And being defined and important to note, being defined as and then treated as as inferior or subordinate to the dominant group, of course, which in this case is male. So Beauvoir argues that this treatment is rooted in the way that women's bodies and their reproductive functions have been viewed and used throughout history, and that it has a really profound impact on the way that women have been able to participate in society. So there are other feminist writers that come before her, Margaret Fuller in the United States, um, certainly Mary Wollstonecraft. And some people call second sex a, a second wave feminism that work. Anyway, that that's the first big point. She does talk a little bit more about that in the manifesto of the 343, where she specifically addresses women who have experienced issues with birth control and their reproductive rights and encourages them to sign on to this petition to with the goal of getting more reproductive rights or expanding rights for women. Wasn't she very involved in uh, movements throughout the second half of the 20th century about women's reproductive rights and other civil rights? I don't know super specifically, but I think so that just because of how her philosophy was that she became central to the feminist movement in France. So it's hard to get away from that once you're in it. I remember a couple months ago when we had Sky Cleary on to talk about her book on Simone de Beauvoir, that was just after the Supreme Court had uh, rendered its ruling and uh, changed how abortion, creating the possibility for a ban on abortion. And I asked her, how do you think Simone de Beauvoir would have felt about that? (laughs) And it was a pretty epic, like 10 minute (laughs) rant that uh, Simone just would have gotten very politically active after that. This is really interesting because I've been in this 
if people haven't been able to tell by how much I mentioned her in Anscombe phase as of the past month or so, just been <laughs> diving in. And one of her lesser known pieces where she argues, it's, it's called um, contraception and chastity. Mm. And she argues that allowing access to contraceptives, and I'm not endorsing this, by the way, I'm just bringing it up as a view. She thinks that contraceptions will lead, and this was a while ago, so, you know, contraceptives will lead to, I'm trying to remember how she put it, kind of to a, a degradation of women because it will make men see them more as sexual objects, I sexual think. Sexual objects, yeah. Sexual objects. Thinking. And so I think that that's, this is really interesting because both women are worried about very similar things, but they're stark on starkly different ends of the, uh, on the cavern, which I think is super cool. And I really, I hate to keep bringing this up, but I really think it's the division uh, between existentialism and, and um, Anscombe's belief in natural law. I really do. And I think that's mm-hmm. super, super interesting how we're seeing this divide in, in political and in, in really social beliefs be hinged on their philosophical beliefs. It's super cool. And it's a super big reason why we think that philosophy is so applicable. So I think it's important for us to remember just contextually how groundbreaking the introduction of birth control pills was at the time. Uh, the FDA in the United States approved birth control pills in 1960, uh, mm. which is not that long ago. And so this was something that was not available to women before. Today, when we argue these perspectives from 2023, we're all accustomed to it, especially the generations who were born post-birth control introduction. Um, so it's quite normal to them. But at the time, all these philosophers who were dealing with this, it was incredibly new and groundbreaking. And no one truly know what Im- knew what impact that would have on society if a great deal of women began using birth control. But of course, from Beauvoir's perspective, the introduction of birth control gave a woman the possibility for for freedom that she felt that they had been denied. And I don't think that the idea that like women should have freedom to act how they desire to in relationships and that having access to birth control would change how men viewed women are necessarily incompatible. I think that there is space for both of those things to exist at the same time because I can definitely see how the male view of women is shaped by like their own desire to engage in relationships from my personal experience. And I think that those things coexist in my opinion, in my experience, I've seen them. Well, that can bring us to like another central point to the second sex was Beauvoir brought up how women historically had been confined to particular roles and expectations imposed upon them by society. There's some factfulness, of course, about being biologically a female that obviously men can't produce babies. So there is some givenness there that Beauvoir, of course, addresses. And that's also an inescapable fact, I presume, of being a woman that had certainly been taken for granted for centuries. And all that limited their ability, women's ability to fully exercise their freedom and agency. So Beauvoir argues heavily that in order for women to be fully free and equal, to be able to live that authentic life that existentialism holds on such a high regard, that they must be able to make their own choices 
and decisions rather than being confined to these particular roles that are dictated by their gender. And I think we could loop this back into her and Sartre's open relationship. This was one of these roles that society imposed upon women. And in order to truly, at least for Beauvoir, to truly embrace that idea of breaking roles, traditional monogamous marriage was part of that. And then finally, uh, she discusses the ways in which patriarchy and the power dynamics between men and women contributed to the oppression of women and, and argues that it's necessary to challenge and dismantle these systems in order to achieve true gender equality. So all that's kind of general and vague, especially for a book that's 800 pages long. But again, a a foundational text and still heavily influential in feminist philosophy today. I do have a quote that I found that relates to that last point from The Second Sex, where she writes, the point is not for women to take to simply take power out of men's hands, since that wouldn't change anything about the world. It's a question precisely of destroying the notion of power. So we're seeing her not just saying that men shouldn't hold power over women, but that nobody should hold power systematically over another group of people. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And ties back into the ethical dimension she was trying to introduce. So Beauvoir's ideas about freedom and the role of women are deeply connected to how she views love and how love is generally applied differently to men and to women. She writes that to men, love is just a part of life. And for women, love is life. So that women are confined to this position of their relation to their husband, whereas men, their relationship to their wife is only a small part of their life and how that shapes how women interact with men and interact in society. And this is one of her biggest sticking points or disagreements, I guess, with Jean-Paul Sartre, that he talks about the unrealizability of love and that the essence of relationships was conflict. But Beauvoir believed that this doesn't imply an ethics and was thus a failure. Yeah, it must have been very interesting to be in a relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre. (laughs) 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 We'll probably talk about that more in the next episode, but. Uh, I don't know if I would have fallen in love with the author, Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, maybe the person, Jean-Paul Sartre. <laughs> it just seems so grumpy. <laughs> but I've read many places that she was very taken with him. And in his younger life, uh, Sartre was quite the player, too. So, so I don't know. Mm. Love is a mystery. <laughs> love is a um, big philosophical interest of mine, which makes me sound like a total loser. But What? <laughs> But it's something that's been preoccupying my work for the past, my big, I think, philosophical work recently. I think it's the only thing of, of worthy that I've ever done, actually. Oh, Andrew, geez, you're so hard on yourself. Yes. I've, I've gotten in big disagreements <laughs> about this with someone, but uh, we can talk about that in a 50th episode, maybe. So I think what's what I'm seeing under the level here about love is and Taylor, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I think, you know, I know little to nothing about Beauvoir, but she s- seems to believe that love plays a very, very important part in, in, in people's lives and relationships, as opposed to Sartre, who might think otherwise. 
and she also seems to think that love is different for for men and women is that is is that right that's how i understand it but i think more that the way that society views love is different for men and women not necessarily that love is inherently different for men and women if that makes sense Mm. okay Makes sense. Yeah, totally. That uh, does sense. make sense. That definitely loops back into her criticisms of society and roles and, and all of that with men and women, those different expectations. It's super interesting that it seems like she's taking a very, and this might be a, another difference between uh, continental mm-hmm. and analytic, but it seems like she's taking a very sociological approach to um, mm. thinking about relationships and and using that to think about philosophy too, which I think is super cool. How you said she's noticing the difference between how society, I don't know, you said it much better than I ever will be able to, but I guess in parts where sees love, the relationship um, difference between men and women, that's really fascinating to me that that she's looking at that and observing. And I don't know, I think that's super cool and, and very different. Well, I know Taylor earlier said that she also wrote for The Common Woman, but The Second Sex, some criticism of it, is that it was written really for the academic intellectuals, and it's just in part why it's 800 pages. But you're right, Andrew, she takes a not only a philosophical, but very sort of biological and sociological approach to her discussions about the roles of women in society. And so it's, a, it's an interesting mix of philosophy uh, biology, uh, psychology, and sociology. In her sure. memoir, Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter, published in 1958, so about a decade after the publication of The Second Sex, she made her philosophy accessible to the common woman, and this is when we see a big rise in her popularity with common people because she's writing all of this mainly for women, about women, So it makes sense that she makes it available for common women to read because that's really who she's writing about and for. And I think that also kind of embodies what she is writing, that women should be equal and they should have access to education and be viewed in a lot of ways the same way that men are and not arbitrarily different. So that women are having access to this knowledge in a way that they hadn't before. We've mentioned it briefly before in this episode to bring it to perhaps what is the ultimate goal, I suppose, or maybe the highest good for existentialists, this notion of authenticity. It's impossible for a person to achieve authenticity without freedom. And if society imposes all these roles upon various people's but especially in her case, women, but she also fought, like I said, for other civil rights and other minority groups throughout their life, we've got to have authenticity or be able to have authenticity so that, and in order to have that, we must have the freedom to pursue that authenticity. So the the one thing I have written down about love is authentic love involves mutual recognition of the freedom of both lover and beloved in a relationship of reciprocity. So in order to that freedom away from those particular roles that are imposed upon women, to, in order to be able to achieve that authenticity, this is like good, this is just good sound relationship advice. <laughs> if you ask me for like 2023, right? Just treat your partner as an equal. It's 50-50 or 100-100, however you want to look at that. 
<laughs> but I think too, it's also important to always be critical, to always be critical of roles that we impose upon groups, because oftentimes we don't recognize that those roles are being given to particular groups, right? And this is why her work was so influential at the time, is that 150 years ago, you know, Schopenhauer is calling women the second sex. And that was not an uncommon view, right? So, so oftentimes these roles that she's being critical of, we don't even realize that society is giving those roles to groups. So it's, it's an ongoing, constant reevaluation, taking critical looks at societally how we address roles. I really love this idea philosophically. It's something that Martin Buber also writes about in I and Thou, how love really is an ethical consideration and it's an act of empathy and not necessarily, it doesn't have to be romantic love, but that there has to be a respect for other people. And he writes that love is a responsibility for an I and a you viewing others not as objects but as subjects and that relationship foundationally is reciprocity so viewing somebody else as your equal and you're their equal I think is really fascinating and we're seeing that idea kind of emerge at the same time what do you think lover boy <laughs> I'm sorry that was I won't put that in <laughs> no that's funny keep it in keep it in no keep it in that's funny I don't know too much about love and relationships it seems somewhat right to me i think it's i think um i'm not familiar with this person's work at all so i don't want to endorse it too much but it seems plausible i mean i don't i don't know who would disagree with that, disagree with that idea oh i think probably a lot of people amongst <laughs> our 8 billion human beings on this planet uh, i'm sure would i'm sure disagree with that idea i'm sure I'm sure it's a very Western sort of liberated type of viewpoint. It is. It is. And um, we're in the Western philosophical tradition, like we say a lot. And that informs a lot how we think about things, too. Sure. I think in the West, that's that's not surprising as an evolution of like Kantian viewpoints or something, which, which is pretty foundational. But we could even take this back to, to an, an Aristotle way, too, in a criticism and again, not saying I endorse this, and I don't endorse it, but for probably a lot of societies, for ancient societies too, roles are really important. I don't. I doubt that they would say that anyone is subjugated in their society. Maybe they would say slaves would, but I think a lot of societies would say, you know, you're just playing your role in the foundation of our society, and if you break that role, choosing to be authentic to yourself, you're really letting the whole community down. You're not playing your crucial role. You are important in this society. And so I could definitely see a criticism mm-hmm. from that way, which is something to think about. And and I don't no, think we should blindly dismiss it. Again, not saying that's just the philosophical way to go about this. But we should, we should talk about that mm-hmm. if we have time. Oh, let's talk about it because I think it's a great point. On one hand, roles in societies are very important. We need to know what our positions are and to continue the the whole human endeavor forward, but also at the same time, roles can be very dangerous. And we can think of plenty of examples, I think, there too. An easy one, it's always so easy to pick on the Nazis. 
but you know, it's just simply fulfilling your duties, fulfilling your roles. Right. And so you're a Nazi SS officer. Well, gosh, you know, I was just working at this death camp, just doing my job, fulfilling my role. Yeah, it's a real contradiction. On one hand, roles are really important for the function of society, but on the other hand, they can be very dangerous as well. I think in Ben Zhao's Lessons for Women, which is one of the earliest philosophical works by a woman from ancient China, she kind of finds a compromise between this where she advocates Mm. for the education of women, but for the purpose that they can better fulfill their societal role and that there are requirements Mm -hmm. that women are supposed to meet in a role that they fill in the family and in a social setting that they're not really seen outside of the family unit, but that they also deserve access to education. So it's a really interesting balance between more or less liberating women from a position of complete submission, but also still maintaining their function because in Chinese society, women still held a really important function in the role in maintaining the family dynamic. I find that very interesting that there is places where it's balanced and not necessarily viewed in a negative context. I mean, I think we can even imagine something like that today where we can, uh, and I think that Beauvoir would disagree with Maybe she would disagree, I don't know. But we can imagine a society where women are very educated and, and they're very much respected. Well, maybe Beauvoir wouldn't think they were respected, but they're PhDs and the same education as men and, and are seen as equal by their, their husbands, but have a similar role in the community that's societally dictated. I don't know. I think Beauvoir would definitely disagree with that since there's cookie cutter roles in, in there. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about, too, from just a massive societal perspective. You know, here we are talking about millions of people and speaking about them uh, (laughs) as as a single group, you know, whereas I'm thinking of like the neighborhood I live in that has, I don't know, 2,500 houses. And probably in every one of those 2,500 houses, the partner group approaches this particular question in their own way. And I find that fascinating as well. It's not that uh, what is the right answer for this particular thing. It's more like, well, what is the absolute wrong answer? Mm. Mm. And I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Can I kick a question to both of y'all that I, th- I think is, is super interesting? No, please. It seems at least this is what I got from the Sky Cleary interview that for Beauvoir, authenticity is really important. <laughs> it's like kind of the the end goal maybe of freedom finding an authentic self in some ways to me that feels like escaping roles that might have been put onto you feels to me almost egoist in a way dropping these roles that you might have but i definitely feel like i have certain roles that people have placed on me and expectations and i feel that if i drop those that would be a very selfish thing for me to do it would be letting maybe my family down my local community down, even my my greater society down for me to just try to to be authentic to myself. Let's start with that. What do you all think about that? Is that at odds with Beauvoir? Well, I mean, it's a great question. And here's where I don't know Beauvoir or Sartre well enough to really address it from their particular perspectives. I know both Sartre and Beauvoir 
talked about acting in bad faith quite frequently. Acting in bad faith is just simply not being authentic to yourself. And how much Sartre versus Beauvoir talked about the importance of fulfilling roles while at the same time being authentic. Uh, I mean, that's the real crux, isn't it? Uh, Can you be authentic while fulfilling particular roles? And is fulfilling particular roles always bad? And I don't think that's really the message. Mm. I think the message is being critical of roles and always evaluating those roles. And when those roles become inauthentic, probably not just to yourself, but certainly on a societal level, we can think of roles that uh, that are certainly inauthentic for uh, for particular persons, especially LGBTQ community or minorities, Hispanic, African American. Certain roles are given to them in a way that's much easier. Like those roles are assigned to them in a way that's just simply more easy. That's a terrible sentence, but easier for them than say uh, people who are white and even white women and white men. But yet differences exist between white men and white women. And so, I don't know. I don't even know if I'm answering your question. I think the point is to just always evaluate those things. Hmm. Yeah. I also don't know enough about her specific philosophy to really answer what she would say. I do know that she has written that freedom for women is also freedom from for men because it's mm-hmm. liberating everybody from a pre-designed social role, but I'm not quite sure how that would relate, I guess, to being authentic in terms of fulfilling your role or not fulfilling your societal role. Well, that's the deal, isn't it, right? Like freedom freedom for women is freedom for everyone. And it's just the act of constant creation of ourselves and of others that we explore that freedom while at the same time keeping the idea of freedom for others. So if we're talking about freedom for others and your societal roles, Andrew, how important is you fulfilling those particular roles that you're thinking of? How important is that in terms of creating freedom for others? So freedom for yourself must also always involve freedom for others. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. But I, I don't know if it's mutually exclusive with holding to your role to holding to a specific role that you might have, but I don't know. We'll just have to leave it there. Okay, everybody. Well, that's it for today. We thank you so much for listening to our episode on Simone de Beauvoir. That's right. And we'd love to hear from you, whether that be on our socials, on Twitter or Instagram, or our email at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. And that's a good reminder about the upcoming episode, the 50th episode, where we will discuss your questions. So please send them in to our email uh, or on our socials. We'd love to hear from you. Can't wait to talk about the things that you'd like to hear us talk about. Of course, a special shout out to Kevin McLeod for the use of his groovy free music in the intro and outro. Taylor, thank you for coming on. And I think you did a fantastic job in the first episode. So special shout out to Taylor. And remember, everybody, just like your favorite teachers and professors always say, whenever your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Thank you very much. See ya. Bye.